Welcome to Reclaiming the Faith with Phil Baker, a podcast with a mission to reveal what the earliest Christians believed about the core issues facing us today. You can find links to all of Phil's resources at philsbaker.com. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen today. Take a moment to share this podcast with your friends. Now, here's Phil. Hey, y'all. Welcome to episode 156 of Reclaiming the Faith. Today, my wife and I close out our Philippians Bible study series that we've done for many, many months here. Uh, Thank y'all so much for listening to this series. And if you enjoyed this series, I think you're really going to like what we have coming down the pike. I do want to turn your attention to my wife's podcast, The Faithful Podcast with Stephanie Baker. If you haven't heard it, please go check it out. I'll put a link for it in the show notes. Also, I am blessed to be a part of Omega Frequency, and uh, I really want to encourage all to check out our latest Ready With An Answer podcast that we did. Uh, You can find it on the Omega Frequency podcast or on the Omega Frequency YouTube and Rumble channels. So yeah, please go check those out. All right. Well, without any further ado, let's close out our Philippians Bible study in episode 156. writing from house arrest in Rome, probably in the early 60s, like 60, 61, 62, something in there. Um, he uh, he thinks he's probably going to get out uh, of the house arrest and be able to go on to Spain, but he's not certain of that, and he's definitely willing to die for the gospel, uh, but he's not just sitting on his laurels. No, he is uh, making the most of this opportunity, he's been witnessing to uh, the Praetorian Guard there in Rome. Uh, they all have heard the gospel, and he's even making disciples uh, from Caesar's own household. Whether that's servants or family members, we're not totally sure, but Paul's getting after it and uh, showing a tremendous amount of uh, courage uh, and faith and joy. And um, He's given his closing remarks to the Philippians. So we'll be doing a little bit of context uh, of things from Acts as we go along. And um, yeah, I'm going to stop doing the intro. (laughs) Let's let's go. So Stephanie, you want to read these verses? All of it? Yeah. Okay. You're good. You (laughs) read good. I'm a good reader. All right. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last... You have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share your affliction with me. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. 
For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases your, to your account. But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Thanks, Steph. Yeah. All right, so verse 10. And again, let me just uh, preface this by saying we're not using StreamYard. Uh, we're doing YouTube straight, YouTube live. So I can't share my screen. Uh, and I apologize for that. So you're going to have to follow along uh, in your virtual Bible <laughs> or actual Bible. Um, but yeah, I'm sure we have access to, all of us have access to that. Um, so verse 10, Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I'm in. You know, it seems like uh, whenever you're talking about money, you got to be careful in the way you approach this stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it seems like Paul is kind of trying to make sure there's no confusion in what he's saying. Uh, I've heard this kind of... Um, talk that Paul uses about giving, whether it be in like 2 Corinthians uh, or here in Philippians. Um, I've, I've heard this stuff misused by pastors as if this would be like an American setting of a church supporting their pastor. And uh, though that might be possible, it's not probable. Because remember, Paul is a frontline missionary. He is not making his living from the gospel, um, he is he is a, he's on trial uh, for the gospel, and he may die. Uh, he is not living lavishly at all. Think about this not as a church supporting a pastor, but think about this kind of like you have a missionary in your church, a single man. No, no, no family, the single man, and he's out in Rwanda doing missionary work during the, the crisis that happened, you know, the genocide that happened out there. Think about a missionary from your church that helped plant your church, and he is out there on the front lines. Uh, clearly, you're not going to be living large in Rwanda where it is incredibly dangerous to be a Christian, all right? And I know that's not a perfect analogy, but just, just think about it that way, all right? This guy is not trying to get rich for the gospel. He's just, he's appreciative that they're sending funds to actually help him eat and, and take, you know, meet his daily need, basically, all right? So um, Paul goes to great length here 
in these verses to uh, establish that he's not in it for the money at all. All right. Now, he says in verse 11, he's not speaking from want, uh, but he has learned to be content in whatever circumstances he's in. That word learned is something that Paul says a couple of verses beforehand in verse 9. All right, so let me read verses 8 and 9, and you're going to hear that word learned again. Remember, Paul is saying he's learned how to be content, and he's going to say that the Philippians have learned something too. So he says, finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things, the things that you have learned, the things that you've received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. So Paul says they have learned and received and heard and seen Paul living out the way of the gospel. And they've seen and heard and learned and received from Paul how to dwell on what is pure, how to dwell on what is lovely, what is of good repute, what is excellent, worthy of praise. Paul has modeled that for them. And this is kind of what the learning thing is. It's not so much a like just um, viewing information. It's more like an experiential learning. And so Paul is saying that he has learned also in that way to be content in whatever circumstances he's in. Now, this word content is very interesting because it's a word that means self-ruled or self-sufficient in the Greek. This is a term that the Stoics used. The Stoics is a branch of philosophy, Greek philosophy, um, and the Stoics particularly are people that Paul ran into in Athens. And you can see that uh, in Acts 17, right? So Acts 16, Paul is in Philippi, and then he goes to Thessalonica, and then Berea, and then he goes to Athens where he runs into these Stoics. Now, one of the main tenets of Stoicism is this idea of self-control, self-ruled, not letting yourself get too high or too low, really ruling over yourself. And it's something that you can do. You can do this on your own. You can be the master of yourself. And Paul turns this word on its head because Paul does not say that he has learned how to master himself through his own strength, but rather it comes not from self-rule, but by someone else ruling him. All right, so let's, let's show through Philippians how Paul is turning this self-sufficiency word contentment on its head. All right, so I'm going to read 11, or sorry, how about Steph? You how, read about a, how about Steph? <laughs> Is that your way of asking? Which one are we reading, 411? Yeah, 411 through 13. Okay. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. 
I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yeah, so just like in Philippians, how Paul will take shots at the gospel of Caesar, just absolutely take shots at it. Um, he is just taking shots at the heresy of Stoicism, that you can master yourself. You find salvation of, of a sorts through being able to maintain like an even keel in good times and in bad times. Being unaffected by life. Uh, in a sense, yeah. yeah. And uh, Paul is just digging right into them. And you get the punchline in verse 13, the verse that is, uh, you know, on athlete shoes and all kinds of stuff, you know, the in their little... the Olympics. Huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Him who strengthens me. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. This is a shot against stoicism. So let's let's dive in. Not that I speak from want, for I've learned how to be content in whatever circumstances I'm in. I know how to get along with humble means. So think uh, Paul in prison, uh, you know, like where he is. But he's also learned how to live in prosperity, which is interesting. He's learned how to be content in prosperity. So there have been times Paul was probably a rich man when he first came to faith. Uh, in every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having an abundance and suffering need, right? Staying here, whether you're down here or up here. And... Um, it's kind of interesting. You have these three couplets, right? You have uh, humble means and prosperity, or sorry, humble means, that's dyslexia. <laughs> this is down and this is up. Sorry. Uh, so he's learned how to, <laughs> an idiot, how to live in prosperity and how to live in humble times. You know, he's learned how to uh, live when he's his stomach is filled and he's learned how to stay content when he's hungry. He's learned how to live in abundance and he's learned how to uh, be content when suffering need. And he says to the Stoics, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Well, I was just thinking about this Stoicism versus like, um, contentment in Christ. And a lot of times it does look the same. Like there's a little bit of kind of, I'm not going to let my financial circumstances determine my, you know, my situation or my, I mean, my mood in life, but it's so much deeper than that because stoicism is like, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. I have not studied stoicism, um, in depth, but it's, it's kind of like, don't be affected by life because it doesn't really matter. And yeah, there are different branches of stoicism okay. and that's, yeah. yeah. But aspect. like Christianity is 
don't be affected by life because something is so much more important than this. And, you know, making Christ known is so much more important than if you have a whole lot of money or if you um, have that security. And, you know, what's interesting is that that level of security is different for each person and it's always changing and it often is an unquenchable kind of thing. So, you know, I think in America we have a certain level of security that we think if I can get there, then I'm good. Um, if I could just make just a little bit more, but you know, if you look in other places around the world, that level of, you know, of security is different. And, you know, even a couple of generations ago, their level of security was different, what they felt like they needed in order to be at peace. Um, so it's, it's so fluid unless it's based in Christ. Yeah. And I really like your connection that you're making to money because that's also what Paul is taking a shot at. He's Mm -hmm. taking a shot at the God of money. You remember, uh, earlier, uh, It was last week when we were talking about the connection between money and worry. When Paul is saying, be anxious for nothing, right? But in everything with prayer and petition and Mm -hmm. supplication, make your requests known to God. And um, the peace of God, which transcends understanding, will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Um. He's really coming at this God of money because it seems like Paul is referencing or he has in the back of his mind uh, Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus says, uh, no one can serve two masters. He's either going to hate one and love the other, be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon. And he goes right into worry and anxiety and then the need to seek first the kingdom of of God, things which are going to give you heavenly riches. All right. Paul talks about, Paul uses this word contentment in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6. And it's really interesting. I'm going to start reading in verse 6. He says, but godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. But if we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction." For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. It's interesting that Paul is not simply talking uh, in Philippians 4 to people that are poor, but people that are rich too. And the desire to be rich and to have more money affects every demographic. It's not just poor people that long for more money. It's also rich people that long for more money and everywhere in between because there is such a strong temptation to worship 
and bow down to money because that can make a person feel self-sufficient and self-ruled. And we do not like being ruled. We want to rule. And we think that money will help us be autonomous. And so Paul says he's learned the secret of being content, whether he is prosperous or in a destitute situation. And what is that secret? It's, uh, it's at verse 13. And it's in this whole section, really. It's kind of a multifaceted secret, but uh, begins and ends with the main um, focus of verse 13. So let's get into that. Before we go on, can yeah, I, yeah, yeah. Uh, Jen posted a verse, a reference, but she said the character limit wouldn't let her do it. It's Proverbs 37 through 9. Two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. That's good, Jen. Let me uh, let me break down a little bit of the Greek for uh, Philippians 4.13. So just literally what it says for... Um, for all things, I have strength in the one strengthening me. All right? That's literally what it says in the Greek. For all things, I have strength in the one strengthening me. So that there are two different words that are being translated strength in that passage. One in the, in the English is often translated as do. I can do all things. Um through him who strengthens me. But that do word I can do is translate is better translated strength, but they're, they're a little bit different. They have a little bit of nuance to them. So that first one, uh, um, is kuo, uh, properly in it's, it's embodied in strength that gets into the fray and engaging the res resistance. So this is like fighting. All right. You're getting into it. As I can do, I have strength. I'm getting into a fight. Like when Paul's saying our battle is not against flesh and blood, our, this wrestling match, it's kind of like that. Um, and uh, think about like um, Jesus, I think it's in Matthew 11 when he says, uh, for the kingdom of God suffers violence and the violent, take hold of it. So violence is being done to the kingdom of God, but actually Paul and well, Jesus was violently, forcefully um, pushing the kingdom of God uh, in advancement, like pushing it forward. Um, think, so think about this strengthening word that way as well. Like this is action. This is forcefully uh, advancing the kingdom in different ways. And the second word, uh, endunamao, uh, this is 
something that is imparting ability. You are being empowered. So Paul does not say that he is the one who's empowering himself to be content. He says God is the one empowering him to be content. God is the one who is empowering him, giving the, him the ability to be self-ruled, to, to govern himself. Notice that is exactly what Paul says in Galatians chapter 5 when he's discussing the fruit of the Spirit. Do we know the fruit of the Spirit? Do I know them? Yeah, you know uh, them. I know you No, know. I, I didn't. Oh, it's yeah, I was asking. just leading yeah, this I, on. I know them. Do it, girl. Love, joy, peace, and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Yeah, that's what I was hoping for. You wanted the song? I did. That was good. What's okay. the last one? Self-control. Self-ruling. Being self-governed is a fruit of the Spirit. How do we produce fruit? Tend to the plant. Yeah, because we can do nothing oh. on our own. If you abide in me and I in you, you will produce much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. nothing. Paul's quoting Jesus, you know, that's where he's getting this from. And so it's really interesting here that Jesus is the one who helps us to rule our emotions. He's the one empowering us to fight for him in this way in the kingdom. And one of the main things that affects our emotions is our finances. It's just true. Mm -hmm. And, um, and it's not just that when we're making money, then we're not anxious anymore. Though you may have some temporary happiness that comes, but problems keep on coming or just this covetousness that sometimes arises in us by looking at what our neighbors have. We may be doing just fine, but then we see somebody that's doing a little bit better than us. And like Paul talks about in Romans 7, like we see with Adam and Eve, covetousness, jealousy. It's there. In fact, it's one, of, it's one of the main things that Pilate noticed in the rulers of the Jews who were trying to crucify Jesus. It says in Matthew, I believe it's Matthew 27, Matthew 27, that Pilate knew it was out of jealousy or covetousness that um, the religious leaders wanted him dead. The sin of envy affects all demographics, the sin of covetousness and jealousy. And uh, we often think that if we just had a little bit more money, we would be okay and we would be able to conquer ourselves, that those emotions that rise up. But that's not true. Remember, if you will, in uh, Acts chapter 20, when Paul is saying goodbye to the Ephesians, the elders of Ephesus, 
he quotes something of Jesus that you won't find in the Gospels. At least you won't find like a word-for-word quote, though you can see it in his actions. But he calls them to remember the words of the Lord Jesus that it is better to give than to receive. Yeah, it's better to give than to receive. And that's not in the Gospels, and yet it's a quote from Jesus. Now, is this just like oral tradition that was passed down to Paul from like his meetings with Paul or with Peter and John and uh, James, the brother of Jesus? Or is this something that Jesus specifically told Paul himself uh, in the many times where he was taught by God himself? Uh, I don't know, but it's more blessed to give than to receive. And if there's one thing that Paul is, it's a giver. Paul has a tremendous giving heart. And he's encouraging, he's thanking the Philippians for them also giving because something incredible happens when we give. Um, Just incredible things happen when we give. When we are giving the way Christ wants to who Christ wants, um, and not just sowing for in order to get a reward. In fact, and that is so messed up, the prosperity gospel. It's so antithetical to the gospel of Jesus, where Jesus says, don't give in order to, you know, receive this earthly reward, you know. Now, um, Paul does say, give because it will give you a heavenly reward. Mm-hmm. But that's not giving, expecting to receive something back, like, physically. Yeah. You know, it's different. It's being more heavenly-minded. It's storing up treasures in heaven, and we're going to get there. Um, I need to keep on going. So let's read, uh, to continue this thought, let's read uh, Philippians 4, 14 to 16. Would you do that for me, Steph? I will. (laughs) Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Okay, so Paul talks about the situation that he's just wrote to the Philippians, he writes about that situation in 2 Corinthians 8. So I'm going to read that. Now, the context of this basically is after Paul left Philippi, bloody and beaten, and you think about it, he got 39 lashes. Paul was uh, not in good shape when he's leaving Philippi, and yet he goes right into Thessalonica and gets persecuted again. Um, This guy is a soldier. He's forcefully advancing the kingdom of God. Uh, And so he writes in 2 Corinthians 8, Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that, and that's like Philippi area, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. 
For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord. He's talking about the church of Philippi. Beyond their ability, they're giving not out of compulsion, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. It's probably of the church in Jerusalem that's going through trouble and also to support Paul and his companions as well. Not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. And so he's just praising them in their participation in the gospel uh, in a great ordeal. Remember, he's been talking about the the trials that the church at Philippi had been going through. The majority of them were not wealthy people. Uh, the, the Christians, Philippi was a very wealthy city, but as is true, as James talks about, it's it's the poor who have been allowed, who are rich in faith um, often. And so you see around the world, it's generally not the rich who gravitate to the message of Jesus, but the poor. And yet you see the poor being oftentimes more generous than the rich. And that's what you see going on in Philippi, you want to say something? Yeah, Froggy said something about um, we're so, we're spoiled or something along those lines. I can't find the actual quote now. Um, we are spoiled. We don't even know it. I think that choice of words is really interesting because I hear a lot of times that we're blessed. And, I, and I, I, I think that, I mean, personally, I feel like it is. But a spoiled person oftentimes doesn't recognize they're spoiled. Mm-hmm. Um it's someone on the outside that recognizes it. And um, I think that's what we look like to a lot of the world. And yeah. I mean, we've been to Mozambique to see my sister several times. We have built relationships with Mozambicans and they are extremely generous, amazing people. And um, I think if if they look at our lives, like what, am I out of the frame? Yeah. <laughs> Pulling me back. Um, like, what do they, what do they think? Do they, do they think we're, we're spoiled and, you know, and, you know, spoiling somebody isn't good for them. It's, it's a term that's obviously got a negative connotation for a reason. Um, but this is the situation that we're in. What are we doing with that? How are we blessing others with that? And how, um, and how much of our security and our, um, our peace is wrapped up in our finances. I mean, we don't have to all like quit our jobs and, you know, work for, you know, no money at all. But there are going to be some people that Jesus calls to leave everything and to go. And it's a lot easier when you're making $15,000 a year to up and leave than it is when you're making $115,000 a year. It's it's more challenging to to be obedient to Jesus the more money we have. Yeah, and so... Um... Paul basically says that the secret to being content, whether you're rich or poor, whether you're struggling or you're living in an abundance, is first of all, being in Christ Jesus, abiding in Christ Jesus so that he's empowering you to take on his mindset and take on his attitude, take on uh, his approach 
to the things of this world. But second, uh, and this piggybacks on the first, because it is in the Lord Jesus's will to be more of a giver than a receiver. I mean, think about, uh, it's more blessed to give and to receive. Think about that in concerning uh, salvation and who Jesus died for and who has received him. Right? Uh, Jesus died for the billions and billions and billions and billions of people who have lived in this world throughout all time. Jesus shed his blood, not just for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. And yet, Jesus says, who is going to receive him and enter into eternal life? Well, in Matthew chapter 7, he says, be very careful to enter through the narrow door for wide is to enter on the narrow path, right? Because wide is the way, the path that leads to destruction and many find it, but few um, find this narrow, difficult road that leads to eternal life. So the vast majority, I mean, just vast majority of people that Jesus gave his life for, that God gave us his son for, reject the son. Jesus is a giver. Jesus doesn't just give to those who bless him back. In fact, at a far greater percentage, he gives to those who not only will never give back to him, will never give their lives back to him. Uh, Not that we could ever pay him back at all, but he gives his life to those who spit in his face, to those who pluck out his beard, to those who nail him to a cross, who whip his black his back to shreds. Jesus is a giver. It is more get blessed to give than to receive. And the more we can learn this, the better we'll be. And I, I definitely need to grow in this mindset um, because I do not find myself living with a lot of... Um, Godly contentment, the way Paul is describing from Philippians 4, 13. I see in myself a lot more of that like worldly pseudo contentment that fluctuates by um, my external situation. Uh, What's going on? Is it easy or is it hard? So I don't know about you, but I, I, I definitely need to grow in that. And I think one of the ways that we do that um, is by taking on this giving mindset. Uh, check out what Paul says in, first, or in uh, Philippians chapter 4, verse 17. He says, not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. Remember, he's He's thanking them for giving to him, for supporting him while he's on the front lines in jail in in Rome, perhaps about to die for the gospel. But he's saying he's he's way more excited for them than for him. And remember, he's not trying to get rich. Don't let this, you know, again, go into your mind like this is a 21st century pastor living large and manipulating his flock. Like, I don't want something from you. I want something for you. You know, while, yeah, 
you know, they're driving their fancy, fancy automobiles. And I don't want to go off on a tangent on that, but just keep that 21st century corrupt version of the church out of your mind when you're going through this. This is a frontline missionary that is jail. Is, he's, he's, he's handcuffed, basically. He's chained to a soldier 24 hours a day. You know, like this is rough living and he may be beheaded soon. And that's what's in his mind. And really, Paul is actually saying here, I do want something for you, not something from you. I mean, it's, it's sad how that terminology can get perverted. But think about what Paul says here in light of Matthew 25. Okay? Um, and then I'll give you another example of this from Luke chapter 7. And when you read Matthew 25 and you, and you pair it with Philippians 4.17, that actually something is being deposited in the Philippians' heavenly account when they're giving to this frontline missionary, all right? They're actually receiving something incredible from that. Pair that with Matthew 25, Okay, and you'll also see that it, Matthew, if 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 Paul's getting this kind of from Matthew seven or Matthew six with the "Don't worry and seek treasures and treasures in heaven," if he's pairing that um, and this Matthew twenty five stuff, you will see that it can't apply to like modern preachers, but in 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 the American church, the way that we normally classify them. Okay, the stereotypical. All right. Matthew 25, 31, but when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Pause there, read Ezekiel 34 and you'll see a very tight correlation here, okay? You got these worthless shepherds that are not taking care of the flock. And then God says he's going to shepherd his flock and he's going to separate the sheep from the the goats, right? The Lord is, and here Jesus is doing that. Okay, Um, very interesting stuff going on there. Uh, Contrasting the true shepherd with the worthless shepherds. Verse 34 of Matthew 25. Then the king will say to those on his right, come You who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. The righteous... This word righteous, these are people who are declared right and they're justified basically in God's sight. But it can also mean, if you're taking it in an Old Testament context, the word righteous and or righteousness and justice uh, are, are like synonymous, this idea of like Sadiq. Um, it means basically when, when righteousness and justice is defined so often, it's taking care of the orphan and the widow, the stranger, that wanderer. Uh, think about what Boaz did for Ruth by letting her um, take grain, right, mm. from the corners of his field. That's practicing righteousness and doing justice. 
All right, James 1, the last few verses. What is pure and undefiled religion, but taking care of the orphans and the widows in their time of distress, right? This is righteous. And these people who are doing these behaviors are called righteous. It's, it's pretty interesting. For the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? When did we see you thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. And, and Paul calls himself the least of the apostles. Paul calls himself the chief of sinners, but he's a brother and he's hungry and he's in prison and he needs clothes. And when these Philippians are taking care of Paul, they're actually doing it to Jesus. Mm. Now, again, I sh I, I, this cannot be applying <laughs> to modern-day pastors because when have they ever been naked? <laughs> they might be one day. You know, when have they ever been hungry? When are these pastors that are getting six-figure or seven-figure salaries— how are they naked or hungry or thirsty? Now, a time may come, like I said, when persecution comes and that may change. But this is applying to people, to brothers in Christ and sisters that are struggling. So, think about, um, here's another example, and I'm sorry to go on that little tangent there, but... Just make sure you're watching the time. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, think about Luke chapter uh, 7, where you've got Jesus in this house full of Pharisees. And somehow this woman comes in, this sinful woman. And that's probably a euphemism for um, a woman who trades in sexual immorality. But she comes in and she, she can't even talk. She just begins to cry and she falls down at the feet of Jesus and she anoints his feet with the best that she has, this costly perfume. And she's, oh, I'm sorry. No, no, no. She begins to cry and her tears are falling on Jesus's feet. There it is. And she begins to like dry his feet with her hair, his wet feet from her tears with her hair. You know, she is just exhibiting so much gratitude toward this man. And the Pharisees rebuked Jesus for letting a sinful woman do this to him. And he says what she's, you know, people are going to remember what she's done. And, oh, I, I may be confusing that with John chapter 12 with his cousin Mary. Sorry, guys, if I'm, blend, a, I'm blending two stories, stories together. There. Yeah, a jumble. But regardless, both of their actions are recorded doing this action to Jesus, pouring out themselves for Jesus. Pretty cool stuff. All right, so verse 18, but I have received everything in full and have an abundance. 
I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Remember, um, Epaphroditus uh, took Paul stuff, um, their, their gift, mm-hmm. and then Paul's sending him back uh, with this letter. All right. This, this fragrant aroma, acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God, it really made me think of um, Romans 12 when it says, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And this world says it is more blessed to receive than to give. Jesus says it's more blessed to give than to receive. And remember, as Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 8, the Philippians first gave themselves to the Lord and then to to him. Um, And remember Matthew 25. I mean, and this is um, just an incredible picture that they're living out. We're coming, we're, we're in the home stretch. Last uh, five verses. And my God will supply all your needs according to his glory, his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. What's up? What I'm this? Froggy says BDK needs prayer. Okay. Pray at the end, or you want to pray right now? Yeah, I'll pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you that um, for this promise that you meet all of our needs according to riches and glory in Christ Jesus, and we pray that for BDK right now in his time of need. Pray that you would be that ever-present helper um, in this time of need. Pray that you would help BDK to um, to be still and know that you're God. Um, that you're you can do more for him while he's asleep than he can when he's awake. Mm-hmm. So let your kingdom come in that situation. Uh, let your will be done. Um, move in a mighty way for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, All right. So we see this God meeting, supplying all of their needs according to his riches, riches in glory in Christ Jesus. One of the best ways that we see that verse lived out, one of the clearest examples of this is from Acts chapter 2. So we're going to start in verse 42. Now, this is after the, you know, the 3,000 people have, um, they have repented of crucifying the Messiah and they have received the Holy Spirit and they've been baptized and the Holy Spirit is moving in a mighty way in the church in Jerusalem here in Acts chapter 2. So starting in verse 42, Stephanie, would you read this? Yeah. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. 
everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, this is not communism. The leaders are not wealthy, freakishly wealthy people. The leaders are poor as well um, as the people. And yet these people are guided not by uh, worldly governments, but by God's Holy Spirit. Selling the things that they, hey, Matthew, good to see you, man. Selling their possessions and distributing it it to those who are in need. And so, with one mind, of course, as Paul talks about frequently in Philippians, the mindset of Christ, uh, considering others as more important than themselves, and with sincerity of heart, with gladness, they're sharing their stuff as anyone has needs, and there's no needy people among them. Mm-hmm. Just an incredible display of the power of the Holy Spirit having, or the Holy Spirit having free reign in folks and just displaying his power to advance the kingdom of God. People being having this godly contentment and displaying it by first being in Christ and then letting Christ rule in them with that blessed is, it's more blessed to give than to receive attitude. All right. Now, Philippians 4.20. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Break down a few of those words and phrases, all right? It says, now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever, amen. Remember, that sounds very similar to something that he says in chapter 2, right? That we're supposed to have the mindset of Christ Jesus who, although he existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant and being found in the likeness of a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient even to death, to death on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess, will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All right, so it seems like Paul is doing a call back there, even though this is frequently in his greetings and in his uh, in his goodbyes, it seems like he's doing a call back there to, again, them having this mindset of Christ this humble, others-centered mindset 
servant mindset of Christ that he urges Yodia and Syntyche to have, that one mind, that mind of Christ, considering others is more important than ourselves. All right? And then he says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. Again, this letter is addressed to the saints in Christ Jesus in Philippi. Remember, this word saint is not like Saint Basil or Saint um, Francis of Assisi Catholic saint stuff. That's not where, where this is coming from. This is the holy ones, the people who have been set apart for God's purposes. Um, these are people who have called to be priests to the world. We all, as Christians, those who are in Christ, are called to be priests to God and to the world, um, representing the, the people to God and representing God to the people. And we're set apart for His good purposes to be ministers of reconciliation, to be ambassadors for Christ, to uh, wage war for the gospel, to advance the gospel, to have not Caesar as our Lord, but Jesus as our Lord, to not uh, be embodying the gospel of Caesar, but the gospel of the kingdom of God, to not seek uh, earthly riches, but heavenly riches. So many... Um, contrasts uh, to the pattern of this world. Um, as God's holy people, we are called to represent him, and that's going to have us looking weird. It's going to cause us to make choices that the world thinks is ridiculous and strange. Um, but Jesus will be applauding us for Um like Paul not showing his citizenship card in Philippi when he could have, and he could have escaped the beating, but he chose to hold that back. That's so weird. And yet God knew exactly what he was doing because he had in mind a jailer and his family that needed to be saved. And that wouldn't have happened if Paul hadn't let himself get beaten. Paul and Silas hadn't let themselves be beaten. It's a very different gospel. And then he says, the brethren who are with me greet you, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Now, Paul is not at all insinuating that Nero is a Christian. In fact, in a couple of years, Nero is going to start uh, tying Christians to poles and using them as torches to light the Roman road as uh, the Roman historian Tacitus writes about in the early part of the second century, that Nero's lighting them on fire, dousing them with embalming fluid, basically some kind of flammable liquid, and lighting them on fire to light up the night. And he's doing this by the hundreds. Just horrible stuff. No, um, the Christian view was not that... Um, Well, let me, let me put it, let me just quote Tertullian, and then we'll break some of this down. This is in Tertullian's first apology, written around 198, to the empire, to the emperor and the empire. And it's really interesting what he says. He says, yeah, the, Chris, the Caesars, the Caesars, 
two would have believed on Christ if either the Caesars had not been necessary for the world or if Christians could have been Caesars. Now you think about that for a minute and the supposed conversion of Constantine. But Paul says, basically, Caesars are necessary for the world. Paul talks about that in, in Romans 13. You know, they're going to be different positions of governing, uh, governing positions in the world, and that's necessary to um, basically reward those who do right and punish those who do wrong and to keep evil in check to a small degree. Uh, that's part of the purpose, and Peter writes about that as well um, in First Peter 2, I believe. But... Um, Though Caesars are necessary for the world, it's impossible for a Caesar to be a Christian. Which is interesting because of a couple of things. They wear the purple and they bear the sword. And that's what you'll see in like uh, the writings of Hippolytus on baptism. Basically, if you wear the purple, you have the right to put people to death. All right? And if you wear the purple... In this Hippolytus writing in the early 3rd century, around like 220, he says, you're going to have to either reject that or you will be rejected for baptism. So they would not allow a governor in our day and age, my governor, Governor Abbott, would not be allowed to be baptized by the early church. Trump would not be allowed to be baptized by the early church. No president would because they have the power of putting people to death. So... It's very simple for Tertullian. Caesars can't be Christians because they do not live by the teachings of Jesus. Now, Luther had a way of getting around that. Martin Luther did. He said, basically, you know, follow the Sermon on the Mount when you're not on the clock. But when, you're, when you are on the clock, you can kill as much as you want. And that makes all the sense in the world, doesn't it? Just like Jesus wanted. Yeah. Um, so let's let's just keep on going. If you want more on that, you could read Jesus for President, right? They got a whole lot in there. Uh, you can read Jesus for President. You can read David Berceau's book. May the real will the real heretics please stand up. Um, that would be that'd be where I would encourage people to start. Um, it always goes to Berceau first. Yep. Uh, we'll, we'll keep moving. I'm just throwing that out there in case, folks. Yeah. So the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. We're at the final verse. Now, uh, I talked about um, multifaceted stuff earlier. The word grace is multifaceted as well. Now, it's often defined as God's riches at Christ's expense, like an acronym. And that's not a bad, that's not a bad definition at all for one aspect of grace which would be like unmerited favor, right? And you see that very clearly in Ephesians chapter 2. It's by grace we've been saved by faith. It's a gift of God, not of our own, you know, not by work so that no one can boast, right? Um, he saved us by grace. You can see that stuff in Titus chapter 3 as well. Very, very clear uh, unmerited favor. Um, but that's not... That's not the way grace is defined in all of Scripture. Grace is defined numerous different ways. Another way it's defined, and this is the most basic definition here, is just simply favor. Like Luke chapter 2, when it says Jesus grew 
in favor with God and mankind, right? Um, Jesus grew in grace. Jesus grew in unmerited favor. Doesn't sound right to me. No, it's just favor. Yeah. All totally right. merited. Yeah, yeah. All right, just favor. Now, here's another one. Another way that it can be translated is thanks. So in Romans chapter 7, the word charis is used this way. Grace be to God for his um, basically like incredible gift, right? When Paul's like, woe is me, who can deliver me from this body of despair? You know, I'm, I'm hopeless. The things I don't want to do, I do. Things I want to do, I don't do. Grace be to God for his incredible gift. Well, God needs unmerited favor. It's just thanks. <laughs> All right. Here's one. This is like divine help. In James chapter 4, he says, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes him an enemy of makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose that he jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us? But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace, grace. to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So this is just help. Help. God's going to help those who humble themselves. It's just extra help. All right? Uh, the word grace is translated as gift. Like we said earlier in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, the manifold grace of God, gifts of God. Whatever gift you've had, use it. Use it. Um, speak as if you're speaking the very words of God, serve with the strength that he provides. It's used as credit, the word credit. In Luke chapter 6 and in Matthew chapter 5, remember in Luke chapter 6, he says, "What if you give to those who will give back to you, what credit is there? Even the Gentiles do that. Credit. That's actually charis. And it's also used as like an idea of kindness. In Colossians 4, 6, like in everything, let your speech be seasoned with grace. Grace. <laughs> I didn't like know you were going to have So it's going to bless <laughs> those who hear, basically. All right. And that's something that I need to think of. You know, I need to think about um, when we're having, you know, debates with brothers. Remember that they're brothers. Hope, I mean, hopefully they are. If, if we're, um, hopefully I am, you know, I mean, like, Ignatius said, I don't want to be merely called a Christian, but be found to actually be one. And that's a little bit of a misquote. I mean, I'm paraphrasing there, but people are, uh, are talking to Ignatius, talking about Ignatius as this incredible bishop of Antioch there at the end of the first century. And he's like, I don't want you to just, I don't want you to be calling me a Christian. It doesn't matter if you call me a Christian. It doesn't matter if I call me a Christian. What matters is if Jesus calls me that if I'm found to actually be one at the end.
Let the prince of the world play on your heartstrings Hold fast to the very last No matter what he brings Pray that when the day comes Everyone would see that you named Not a fake inside of me Didn't stray from the way that we're called to follow Cause when the day comes The secrets revealed all the hate Discipleship arrives They're gonna tear me apart But still I'm holding Holding on to the glorious one Who's gonna make